0: Welcome to the April edition of Information's Crossroads Podcast. I'm John Burke, America's editor for Information. Our intent is to deliver the world of project finance to your living room in under 30 minutes or less, or get a free pizza. Joining me in today's discussion is Andrew Vitelli, reporter for Information, and Jonathan Carmody, news editor for, in- for Latin America. Welcome to the program, guys. So, Jonathan, we start in Mexico, uh, where um, a interesting trend has emerged. AMLO kicked it off this year off the wrong way by just canceling a massive project in uh, Mexico City in the airport. Uh, but all of a sudden, we're starting to see signs of Greenfield's activity uh, being resuscitated by municipalities, uh, by states. So the thesis we had going into the year that Greenfield activity might be dead in Mexico has been uh, refuted a little bit by states still wanting to do good, still building things. Mm-hmm. So why don't you talk to us about some of these um, specific projects and sort of what's um, behind all of this?
1: Sure. And just to give a little bit of background, there were a couple of articles that I wrote recently about the reviews of contracts that we've seen. Initially, a lot of the attention seemed to be focused on the energy and renewable projects that were tendered, including you know wind farms, solar plants and gas pipelines under concession models. Now, there's been a lot of talk from the government about how these weren't necessarily good value for money and they wanted to review the contracts and possibly enter into voluntary renegotiations, which was a bit of an ominous term for the private sector. After that, however, we had a speech recently from Rocio Najle, the Secretary of Energy, where she said that transmission lines in the country, as everybody knows, are incredibly saturated for electricity. So she backtracked a little bit and said that now that Sener, the Secretary of Energy, and the CFE, the Federal Electricity Commission, would possibly seek financing and associations in in inverted commas, uh, which obviously in in Spanish is PPPs, Asociación Público Privada. Now, that was a little bit more reassuring for the, the energy developers out there. The people I've spoken to in the market generally say that they're confident that they're, the reviews won't find any corruption, the reviews won't overturn any contracts, and there should be a, an accord going forward. But as you said, what our reporter Katie Galvala has been uncovering recently is a wave of you know, regional, municipal, and state-level PPPs that still seem to be in vogue amongst local administrations give you a few examples, uh, she reported on a $300 million bypass in Sierra del Carmen in the, the southeast of the country, uh, Quintana Roo, uh, one of the big touristic states in the Mayan Peninsula. They've got a portfolio of possibly up to four PPP projects, including a regional train system between Cancun and Tulum, uh, a bridge across the, the lagoon in Cancun federal highway extension and a light rail project to improve connectivity within the city of Cancun itself. It's a very ambitious and very expensive, possibly about $2 billion of projects there. Monterrey has been considering some highway renovations, including installing viaducts to try and alleviate some of the traffic. Anyone who's been to Monterrey knows that it's desperately needed. The governor of the state of Mexico submitted three PPPs to the legislature for approval, including two prisons and a highway network. So it's very interesting to see that the regional governments might pick up a bit of the slack, and investors might find opportunities down there in, in smaller, perhaps more humble PPPs, but perhaps more numerous. Right? The other thing we saw previously was a large impetus on PPPs in Baja, California, where they tended out the Playa de Rosarito project. As we understand it, it's still looking for financing, but early last year in March, BlackRock actually took a 55% stake in the project, which shows some of the level of interest and the viability of these regional projects. So uh, jumping onto to that point,
0: uh, you've also written extensively about the rise of uh, SERPs or uh, funds in Mexico. Um, do you think that's what's driving some of the state's motivations, knowing that this could be a um, receptive audience to this type of project?
1: Certainly. There's a lot of capital out there that still needs to be invested from the CKDs and the Serpes. The difference obviously being the CKDs are exclusively within Mexico and the Serpes can invest up to 90% outside of Mexico. Where we reported on Beal Infrastructure Partners launching a CKD for debt financing. And that's very interesting. I wasn't initially convinced that there would be enough opportunities, but they were quite reassuring in terms of the projects that are in the market, uh, a lot of storage facilities for oil and gas. As we know, one of the big issues in Mexico is the lack of hydrocarbon storage. I think for the country as a whole, they only have three days of reserves, which in the event of some kind of oil and gas disaster could be catastrophic for the country. So, you know, with those kind of projects, some of the PPPs and, and concessions that are already out there that have been awarded, still looking for financing like Rosarito, there could still be some opportunities out there for that fund, but it will be interesting to see where infrastructure funds start to allocate those resources as the federal pipeline appears to be drying up.
0: Well, it's good to see they're uh, building infrastructure outside of Cancun as well, as in Cancun. Anyway, from Mexico we go to the pipelines, um, where Andrew Vitelli has been spending a lot of time uh, covering deals and uh, doing a, uh, an analysis piece. So, Andrew, I counted up before I came in the year-to-date totals uh, for pipeline projects that reach financial close. Um, In the U.S. and Canada, we have 11 deals. Uh, We did not have dollar amounts for every deal, but the ones we did added up to $8.5 billion. Um, A massive amount of capital has been spent. Newcomers to the infrastructure space, such as Blackstone Infrastructure, got involved um, in a big deal with Tallgrass Energy. Um, but then it's gone to um, the conventional guys like EQT, energy only guys like Arclight. Um, I believe Partners Group did a deal recently too that was on the debt side, I believe, with Montagi Partners. So there's a lot of people getting involved in this space. And so uh, I'd certainly like to hear uh, your thoughts on the d- dynamic behind this.
2: Yeah, and to put that into some perspective, in 2015, there was about $4 billion just looking at Brownfield. Of midstream deals in the U.S. That rose to ten billion dollars in 2016, and by last year, it topped 20 billion dollars. So from 10 in, in 2016 to over 20 so in, I'd say in 2018, it's going to exceed 2018 at this point. I I lo- it looks like it. it. It looks like it, and it didn't seem like it was possible. But if it continues this pace, it's going to blow away last year's numbers. And I mean, there are a few trends driving that. I mean, in the macro sense, you have to look at the shale revolution that has made the united states you know not only a huge producer of oil and natural gas but also an exporter and that's a dramatic change from from just from just a few years ago especially when you look at the exports but when it comes to infra funds there is another dynamic that's been driving this and that is changes in the in the ownership structure between 2003 and around 2013 there was a move towards the MLP structure for the ownership of these pipelines. That structure worked very well for a time, but it really required a lot of growth, tapping the equity markets a lot, and the price of oil to stay high. And in 2014, that all came crashing down, and there was a sense that the MLP structure was, was not viable in the long term. And the infra fund structure, which really is a more patient capital structure, became a better fit. And that coincided with infrastructure funds raising massive amounts of capital and looking to deploy it. And pipelines and midstream companies became a natural fit for that capital. So that's really what we're seeing. And I think that's going to continue for the foreseeable future, really.
0: And I guess, um, you know, what's interesting about this is that uh – you know, we came from a time, to Andrew's point, where oil prices dropped. Um, and you saw, you saw a lot of conventional drillers um, basically file for insolvency uh, because they were equipped to um, make money if the oil price was above $80. And then when it was at 40 or 50 bucks, they fell into bankruptcy, basically. Um, and these are obviously massive operations, a lot of leverage involved. You know, what I'm getting to is, well... The after effect is you see all this investment going now back into midstream. Um, and so, um, you know, the observation there is, well, again, oil is here to stay. They're drilling oil. Uh, there needs to be pipeline transporting this from some place to another. At the end of the day, it's a critical part of how the drilling operation, operation works in the United States and in Canada. Um, so I kind of think that's where the investment, why the investment dollars are flowing so rapidly into it. Obviously, your point structure makes clearly a lot more sense. Um, a lot of the closed-end infrastructure funds we cover are structured for ten years with uh, two one-year extensions. Um, there's obviously continuance funds, which allow people to continue to participate um, in the space if they continue want to, you know, pursue their investment thesis fo- moving forward past twelve years. And there's also openly listed funds that are out there as well on the market where uh, the tenor is uh, infinite, it's essentially which is where we are with Blackstone and um, Brookfield, I believe. So it's uh, sort of, a, to your point, a sustainable dynamic, I think. It is. Um, and
2: you mentioned the cha- the turmoil that the industry overall, the oil and gas industry, experienced in 2014. It's worth noting that midstream companies were relatively insulated from that. You didn't see a lot, if any, bankruptcies of midstream companies. That's in part because a lot of them have take-or-pay contracts, so that even if there is a slowdown in the flow of gas or oil, of oil or gas, or a decline in the price. They're still getting paid, and also even some of these upstream companies that were that were in bankruptcy were still honoring these uh, their midstream contracts because they had to get that oil to market. Yeah, it's called a critical vendor. I mean, that's that's kind of how these things are constructed. So they were so, still getting paid. So when it comes to the pipelines they are a relatively safe bet, even if there are changes to, uh, to, the, to the price of oil and to that, those dynamics. Now, there are some facilities like gathering and processing that might be a little bit more at risk if there is a dramatic change in the price of oil, if some of the upstream producers don't produce as much as they expected to. So you're seeing some of these companies creep into infrastructure portfolios, and with that, maybe a little bit more risk than we're seeing from the midstream companies. So far, there haven't been cases where it's really blown up in anyone's face, but it's, it's something to keep, to keep your eye on. There are those in the industry that have sounded some warning bells about that.
0: Excellent. Uh, thank you for that. Um, so last part of the program, uh, we have to bring up uh, airlines, because as Jonathan knows, it's my favorite topic in the whole wide world. Um, We saw a development this week where uh, Global Infrastructure Partners, um, now on the precipice of closing their latest fund, uh, hired former American Airlines executive Thomas Horden to join their group and ostensibly advise them on airports. And this follows on the heels of um, a couple of developments, uh, Corsair Capital in recent months, uh, doing a continuance fund for Vantage Airport Group. And then uh, Oak Tree forming an, another joint venture of their own on commercial airlines. And then um, Carlisle's uh, airport group CAG emerging as a proponent at JFK on one of their massive renovation projects. Um, uh, and on the back half of that, you have a couple of Canadian deals where uh, institutions uh, recapitalized and uh, bought into the airport space. So where is this all leading? Um, I think it's going to be a major theme for us in 2019 and in 2020. Um, you have a lot of activity around New York and L.A. Yes, um, that is true. These are real processes that have happened. And then the question is kind of then what? You know, we have a, um, a project in St. Louis that everybody's looking forward to and, you know, it seems to be a lot of investor interest in and everybody's asking about, well, when's the RFQ going to get released? Um, you know, that's something for people to watch. Um, and the question is, well, then what? Um, so I feel like that's a, a game we're going to be playing, um, this year, particularly in the U S, um, in terms of where these investor dollars are going to flow. Um, but I guess the good news is, is that I guess the FAA at least is supporting this. They have the reauthorization bill from last year, which does give a federal subsidy. If you want to look at doing something with your airport, we'll reimburse you. So continuing that theme, uh, Jonathan, I know you've done some work on a, uh, A project that's sort of apart from the mainstream airports that are out there uh, in Florida. So why don't you tell us about it?
1: Yeah, the Airglades International Airport Plan has been accepted as part of the FAA authorization program as one of America's first truly private airports. It's a cargo facility that looks to shift the cargo handling operations from Miami International Airport about 100 miles north um, taking goods like um, frozen food and and produce that's coming from South America, uh, all the way closer to the consumers. So if you move the airport north, you're obviously much closer to the federal highway networks that you're going to distribute to. So there's going to be cost savings involved there. They're going to have some storage facilities. They're going to be able to do customs there. We've been speaking to people close to the project, and it looks like it could be around $500 million worth of investment in building all the facilities, the runways, and everything adjacent to the project. Uh, We heard as well that they're in negotiations with several investment banks, possibly in regards to some kind of financial mandate. So we could be seeing a financing for the project in the next 6 to 12 months.
0: Well, that's it for this week's edition of the podcast. So we will uh, see you next month. Thanks for joining us.